This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our regular Friday segment, Your State You, with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max Page, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Bill, and good morning. Yes, I'm really pleased today to have with us on the show Doug Selwyn, uh, who's a local author and activist um, who has written a new book, uh, at the center of all possibilities, transforming education for our children's future. Doug, uh, welcome this morning, Doug. Thank you, Max. Glad to be here. So Doug taught for 14 years in the Seattle public schools, then moved on to teacher education at Antioch University in Seattle and then at SUNY Plattsburgh, and where he was a professor of education until he re retired in 2017. And he's written several books on education, including um, all children are, are all our children. And then now this book, as I said, that just, just come out at the center of all possibilities, transforming education for our children's future. Doug, for people, of course, on the radio cannot see the cover, but it is, uh, I want you to explain it, if you could, the listeners and why you chose that and what, what the title um, summarizes about the book. Uh, okay, so the, the cover, I'm looking at it now, is um, the Crab Nebula, and it's ex basically an ex exploding star. And um, it's a NASA photo. And uh, when a star explodes, basically um, virtually all the elements that make up life are sent through the universe, out, out through the universe, through space. And so what we are comprised of are the elements of exploding stars. And, and so those stars are, in a sense, the center of all possibility. Um, and that's what I want for my students or what I wanted for my students when I was teaching, that, that idea that they could, they would have the skills and knowledge and dispositions and, and all that, uh, that would allow them to move to whatever it is that, that they wanted to move to, that wanted, my agenda was to to help them to be able to um, to move in whatever direction called to them, um, and that they had the ability to learn what they needed to learn. They had the ability to deal with the world in whatever the world threw up uh, at them, um, and be able to succeed at it. And I believe, Doug, that 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 vision. It, you you lay out that vision that, and that schools are the center of all possibilities precisely because you don't think our schooling, our schools are doing that now. Tell us what's that fundamental uh, kind of narrowing of the idea of public education that you see? Well, uh, I'm not sure that public education was ever the center of all possibilities. Uh, it, it came about um, really to serve those in power. And I think it still does, so that it it helps to maintain and educate in a way that maintains a hierarchy that that serves those in power. Um, we there's plenty of research out there that show that the education that that students in the wealthiest communities get is is more focused on helping them learn how to be leaders or rulers or or to take the the privileged spots in society and that schools in Poor communities, particularly communities of color, communities of uh, immigrant students, etc., offer them, I guess, uh, doors that open to lower levels of of the hierarchy. So, I think schools have a tremendous potential to help, but at this point, I don't think that's what they're doing. And part of it is because we choose not to fund them. It's interesting. Long before I got involved in in uh, you know education advocacy as a as a union leader, uh, my PhD advisor was a man named Michael Katz, who wrote a book called um, "The Irony of Early School Reform in Massachusetts." And one of the his concluding points is that exactly what you just said that um, we've never had a kind of reform movement that was truly, as you write in the book, you know, fully child-centered education focused on the full possibilities of our students, that there were always other political, economic programs that were foisted upon the schooling. I think that's shocking to a lot of people. I think 
many of us feel like schools are removed, somewhat removed from society, that they can pursue and they can educate the full student. But I think what you're saying and the authors here and, and much other research has shown that it is that schools have actually played an absolutely instrumental role, unfortunately, in perpetuating many of the inequalities we have. Well, and pretending that schools exist in a bubble and not connected to society, I think, is one of the myths that um, that we can fix schools without dealing with the underlying um, inequalities in our society is is continually perpetuated, but but continually plays out um, as a myth that it's not true. Uh, one of the first, well, the first essay in the in the book. Um, is from Richard Wilkinson. And Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett wrote this extraordinary uh, book called The Spirit Level, which uh, looks at the role that inequality plays in virtually every society and every state um, in, in, the, in the country and world, uh, that the greater the inequality, uh, the more dire the consequences for much of the population. Um, it plays out in worse education, but also in worse health. Uh, states and societies that have larger gaps between the rich and poor have more people in prison, have more people who are dealing with drug issues, have more people who have teenage uh, births, um, just problems across the board. And if you don't, fit, if you don't address the inequality, um, it certainly plays out in the school when we fund schools based on property taxes, those poorer communities have less money to bring to the schools, which means they're less likely to have the resources they need, uh, less likely to be able to pay their teachers and have adequate staffing, and it shows up in poor, poor results for the students. And it's not about the students' intelligence, it's about the, the resources and, and support that families and students get. We're talking with Doug Selwyn, who's a local author, activist, educator, and the, the author of a new book, At the Center of All Possibilities, Transforming Education for Our Children's Future. You know, that first essay in, the, in this collection of, of essays, by this essay by Richard Wilkinson, also raises up or talks about the research that is, I think, a lot very uncomfortable for a lot of us, frankly, also for educators, which is this notion that 50, 60 percent of the results, that is the, the ability of students to succeed in schools, however we define that, is defined by the things that they bring with them. Their poverty, the, the, the situations at home, the situation of their community, crime, and on and on and on. And that is goes against our view that if we just craft the perfect school setting or curriculum, then it's a completely level playing field. And essentially we're saying that many kids, a large portion of our students, come in with the kind of obstacles of a society of such great inequality. Well, I think that that plays out. And, and David Berliner also ha uh, brought that research um, by now 13, 14 years ago, that, that a great percentage of what happens at school is determined by what happens outside of school. That doesn't mean the schools can't make a difference. It doesn't mean that somebody who grows up in poverty or is a student of color or this or that can succeed. It just means they have a lot more, um, many more obstacles to overcome. And that as long as inequality persists, um, they are going to have many more obstacles when they get out of school. You know, what jobs are available? What resources are available? What connections do they have? Um, that help help them get a leg up into a first job or into a good college situation or a good work situation, whatever it is. Um, it's it's a complicated process. Um, I talked with Bill a couple of weeks ago about the book. And one of the things that, that came very true, I was part of a group that was having conversations about how to open schools when the, when the pandemic hit. And part of what we found out very quickly is that there is nothing more interconnected than schools and the communities in which they exist. And that anything that happens in school is going to have an enormous impact on the community uh, from the childcare issues and healthcare issues and the kids who are fed at school because there isn't enough food at home to um, 
you know, nurse checkups to virtually everything um, that school offers, but also that what happens at school, I mean, what happens in the community is going to have an impact on what happens to, at the school. So when the kids are at home because they're learning remotely and the parents have to work uh, and there's no one to watch or there's no broadband or there's, you know, play out the issues, they are interconnected and we have to treat them that way. We can't expect schools to do it all on their own, uh, changing none of the underlying issues. So I will say, and we're talking to Doug Selwyn, the author of a new book at the center of all possibilities, um, that this is something I'm, I'm very pleased of and proud that the our union has moved in the direction of, which is that we're treating some of the battles for tax reform, for hiking the minimum wage, providing sick leave for all workers, paid family medical leave. I see those as education reform efforts. That when we moved the, the 15, the, the minimum wage, we've moved it from, you know, down below 11 to 11, now up to 15 on this coming January 1st. That is an anti-poverty measure. And anti-poverty is an education reform measure as well. It's not, it's not a single, you know, single answer, a magic, a, a magic answer to everything. But when we start to provide um, people those opportunities, uh, young people, that is actually has a direct effect on their ability to learn. So I think we only have a, a couple minutes. So Doug, I just want to hear what you have to say about your quick assessment about the possibilities. We have a new election coming up, potentially a new governor. What um, do you see see openings here for new possibilities in, in education? Well, absolutely. I think the fair share amendment uh, offers the possibility of more funding. I think recognizing that we have to treat whole children we have to deal with old children. There's much more awareness, and if anything, the um, the uh, pandemic has done it has highlighted the fact that there is gross inequality that mostly we don't talk about or has been kept hidden. We couldn't keep that hidden during the pandemic, as the impact was much more severe on communities of color, communities in living in poverty. So we can we have the opportunity to address more completely the issues that facing us. Um, single payer healthcare is another example that um, there was a study done that uh, if there were single payer healthcare, those of us in Greenfield would save $4 million. We could do something with that budget that would include education. So we have the opportunity. Budgets are, a, are an indication of values, and we can be more clear about what our values are and, and, and act on them. Great. Th thank you so much. We've been talking with Doug Selwyn, who's, who's the author of At the Center of All Possibilities, Transforming Education for Our Children's Future. Given how um, center, central education issues are in the nation and the Commonwealth, and will be, I think, as part of the coming election and the next legis legislative cycle, I have a feeling we'll be talking again, Doug. Um, so thanks again for this book and also for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Max and Bill. Appreciate it. Thank you, Max. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was haven't been talking. I was just listening. It was really interesting. Thank you, Max Page. Thank you, Doug Selwyn. We'll be right back with Salman Hamid, Salman Hamid's universe, right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. In the late 30s, they started singing together at the Alabama Institute for the Negro Blind. In the 40s and 50s, they spread their gospel across the Jim Crow era South. You gotta keep the devil down in the hole. In the 60s, they shaped the sound of the civil rights movement, singing at events with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On September 16th, they'll be singing at UMass. Going up to the spirit in the sky. The Blind Boys of Alabama, Friday, September 16th at UMass Amherst. Over 80 years of gospel. Along the way, teaming up with Stevie Wonder, Lou Reed, and Prince. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website and get ready. The Blind Boys of Alabama will raise the roof on the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall, Friday, September 16th at UMass Amherst. Hi, this is Nick Seaman from the Black Sheep in downtown Amherst. We're now open seven days a week from 8 a.m. 
and we have live music every Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 1. We continue to make our great sandwiches, bake our wonderful croissants, Danish breads and desserts, and brew Dean's Beans Organic Coffee. We also have a freezer full of entrees to go that will help you simplify your life. And if you're having a party, let us know how we can help you make it a success. Just call our catering department to talk about menu options. On a political note, always remember that the Second Amendment says, quote, well regulated. Make sure you call your congressman and senator and demand that they do their jobs. We're the Black Sheep in downtown Amherst, having fun with food and politics since 1986. Save 30% at WHMP.com. Join Mark Patrick Seminars and lose the weight guaranteed for only $49.99. Hypnosis designed to stop disordered eating and cravings. Also, you can stop smoking with Mark Patrick Seminars. Hypnosis can destroy your desire to smoke without cravings, irritability, and weight gain, or your money back. Join the over half million others who have attended. Seminars are Monday, October 3rd at Hotel Northampton. The weight loss seminar is at 5.30 and the stop smoking seminar is at 8 p.m. Go to markpatrickseminars.com to learn more. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Space, a final frontier. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Salman Hamid's Ridiculously Large and Largely Ridiculous Universe, Salman Hamid's Universe. Salman Hamid is a professor at Hampshire College and an astronomer, and this is his monthly time with us, which I always look forward to. Today, I want to hear about, well, the return to the moon. Uh, humankind is going back to the moon. And, well, the launch was postponed, but now, what is it, Monday? When do we go back to the moon? We Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, oh. yeah. And there's no we as a part of it. No, there's no we. <laughs> We're not going anywhere. <laughs> no, we, by we, I mean people. <laughs> okay, tell, talk uh, right. to us, Salman. Yeah, so, uh, so just um, uh, a quick thing. Yeah, I mean, we are going back to the moon slowly <laughs> so uh so yes uh it was scheduled for last um monday uh, monday morning and this is just for people uh, just to remind people this is artemis one this is the big push to go back to the moon it's uh, the u.s uh, europeans canadians japanese i mean all these space agencies combined together and 1972 was the last time when humans landed on the moon. And since then, this is the first time uh, that there is an effort to bring humans back. Uh, even though in this particular mission, uh, this is an, uh, a non-human mission, it's, uh, it's uncrewed, but it's going to go uh, and the, it is a test uh, that we can send. So everything is going to be as if humans are on board, uh, except that they are not. This is the test <laughs> oh. of the space launch system, SLS. Sorry, Bill. <laughs> yes. Okay. So it's a human launch without the humans. I, I am I following this? Well, for, so it's interesting actually. I did not think about it as much, but then I realized actually that one of the things they were talking about was for Apollo program. Uh, the uh, the the challenge was that you could not have a purely robotic mission or sort of like, you know, without humans, because humans were needed to put sort of like commands in there and things like that in the rocket. Whereas now actually you can control it. And in fact, that is one of the things that they are testing because this is going to go and orbit the moon and it's going to be on the far side of the moon as well. And the commands are going to be actually automated already in the spacecraft. So that's one of the things that we can do. And so why put humans uh, in the risk sort of like, you know, uh, to do that. So, so that's, that's an interesting component, uh, but it launches for people who are uh, keeping track of it. Uh, the launch window tomorrow starts at 
uh, I think 2.17 p.m. Eastern time. The weather looks a little bit iffy, and they will try it early next week as well. But if it doesn't launch, then unfortunately the whole the rocket will have to be removed and send it back to uh, the assembly uh, build the vehicle assembly building, and because apparently uh, it has these explosives that are designed sort of like to destroy the rocket in case it goes off track, and they have to be retested every 25 days, and that can, oh, retesting can only be done in that vehicle assembly building. So, uh, so if it doesn't get launched in the next couple of days, uh, they think their explosives are going to expire. <laughs> Not in that way, but there, there's a use by date on the explosives. That's what you're telling yeah. us. It's like so. So basically, explosives and milk are exactly the same thing. <laughs> I bet you should throw the milk away before the explosives, though, because when that they're really serious about that date on the milk. Maybe a little more loosey goosey on the explosives. Right. Yeah. Although, if, you, if the rotten milk, by the way, it's the smell is you know pretty much as lethal <laughs> as the explosives. Well, it, yeah, something about this is concerning. Uh, talk me down from this ledge, if you would please, Professor. Uh, there's an explosive uh, device. Do they still have it when there are going to be astronauts on on, on, the, on the next launch? No, I, uh, no. I mean because. Uh, Oh, right. I mean, yes, that I think that would be the case, too. I, my, my guess would be yes. Uh, I mean, this is not OK. I, I, I should clarify. This is not the sort of like, you know, the first thing that would come. to I, mind. I, I hey, assume this is last on the list of 100 ways to solve the problem. Right. I mean, if it's like, you know, landing on some populated area or something like that. And again, that hasn't happened. So this is sort of like the last uh, uh, scenario. But I just wanted to mention that. Uh, yeah, so I mean, that should not be the focus of that. Okay. Uh, the key aspect is that the mission is supposed to be uh, uh, Artemis 1, the first part. Next part, you, you are going to have uh, landers on the moon. And then the third part would be to take uh, humans back. And those, the next two phases are expected in 20. Second phase can happen uh, sooner, but certainly humans are expected uh, to be 20, 2025. Okay, so, so it's not that far away. No, so tell me this. Uh, uh, it's been a long time since humankind has been on the moon. Have we lost an opportunity here? Have decades been lost? Because I assume there are good reasons to go back to the moon now. And if there are good reasons now, I assume there were, have been good reasons for decades. So tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, for space enthusiasts, I mean, that certainly is the issue that there was so much momentum after Apollo to a certain degree that it looked sort of like, you know, the pace of humans getting to the moon after the invention of the airplane was insane. Like, you know, uh, and so uh, so it was thought like 60 years, 65 years after the invention of the airplane, you are on the moon. And so you would think then in the next 10, 20 years, you would be on Mars uh, and now it's been 50 years. In fact, 1972 was the last time humans landed on the moon. So yes, and there are different reasons why, why people give why humans didn't go back. Uh, in particular, from the US perspective, the uh, end of the Cold War, well, that was later on, but certainly it was about Cold War. It was the space race. And once it was over, it was one to a certain degree, the focus shifted. And some people argue that the focus towards the space shuttle, which was supposed to have made space travel cheaper and easier, that never happened. So that was a big misstep to a certain degree. And the last thing I would say is, why go back? And that because it is such a harsh environment. But in the late 90s, and then since then, uh, we have discovered that there is actually water not that much water, but certainly there is uh, water that is a little below the surface as well, and also in the on the polar regions, especially in the southern polar regions, where uh, you have uh, craters where uh, they are always in the shadow, meaning to say sun doesn't come in and evaporate it. And so we think that there is actually water there. And because of water, the equation has changed because you can actually uh, water is very expensive. It's very heavy to get there. 
if you have water, not only um, it's it's good for human survival, but also it can be used for if you break H2O, you have hydrogen and oxygen. It can be used for uh, breathing, and also it can be used for fuel for missions to Mars on, and other places. Is the water on the moon proof that the moon came from Earth? I mean, that's how the moon was created. Uh, no, water is actually quite uh, sort of like uh, available in the solar system, and and you have asteroids and comets that bring water in, and so and of course they crash on the moon. So we think that that is from there, but normally it gets evaporated, or, and there was also this issue that it may be whatever water there may be too far down the surface but it looks like there have been a couple of deliberate crashes on the moon and and then uh spacecrafts have analyzed uh the plumes that are coming out and they find actually it's not that deep uh, and in fact just last month a korean mission named danuri which is a combination of moon and enjoy uh that is uh, that was launched on august 5th and one of its goals, so it has multiple things, but one of its uh, scientific payloads actually includes a very sophisticated camera, actually provided by NASA, there's that particular one, that is going to take pictures of, uh, of uh, the, these uh, polar uh, regions and try to detect water, because that is now a really important thing. And in fact, the place to land, uh, and you may have heard of another country, which we cannot name anymore. Can we on the radio? But China, uh, (laughs) they are also planning on going there. And it certainly is turning into another Cold War type situation. Artemis program that I mentioned, China is excluded from it. So China is making its own plans. And it recently had robotic missions that went even to the far side of the moon as well. The thing is that if you are building a base over there on the moon, it's going to be towards the polar regions, in particular towards the southern polar regions. And uh, and again, nobody is saying that openly, but my guess is like, you know, that that's, I think that there is a race towards it. Who gets there first and who gets to get the optimal position where there is more water. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more with professor and astronomer Salman Hamid after this. This is Bill Newman, Fly WHMP. The moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Holyoke Ward 2 Councilor Wilmer Polomota has been expelled from the city council. The announcement was made at the start of yesterday's special meeting. Mass Live reports that Polomota said he did not resign and plans to take legal action against the city. Polomota, who returned to the council last week, faces criminal charges in Rhode Island, including a child pornography charge. Before his return, he spent 90 days in the Rhode Island Adult Correctional Facility for violating bail conditions. There's a new chairperson for the Cannabis Control Commission in East Hampton. Former state treasurer and East Hampton native Shannon O'Brien will take over the role from interim chair Sarah Kim. O'Brien was state treasurer from 1999 to 2003 and is no stranger to politics. She served in the State House of Representatives in 1999, as well as state senator, and comes from a political family. O'Brien says she's eager to get to work implementing the new cannabis industry reform law that Governor Charlie Baker signed earlier this month. A case of monkeypox has been detected in Western Mass. Health officials said they were only notified about the case 48 hours ago. According to the Quabbin Health District, the person infected with the virus is doing well and is keeping in touch with the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. This is the first time their district, which covers the towns of Pelham, Belchertown, and Ware, has seen a monkeypox case. Sunny today with a light breeze and a high of 78 to 82. Scattered clouds tonight, low of 48 to 54. Sun cloud mix on Saturday, a high of 80 to 84. And then low to mid 80s on Sunday. Watch out for a scattered shower in the afternoon. Showers likely on Labor Day Monday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El presidente Joe Biden hizo sonar la alarma el jueves por la noche sobre lo que él considera amenazas extremistas a la democracia estadounidense por parte de las inquietas fuerzas del trompismo. Su objetivo es reformular las elecciones de noviembre como parte de una batalla incesante por el alma de la nación. Casi dos años después de que derrotó a Donald Trump, es una repetición del tema de la campaña de Biden para 2020 que expresa lo que está en juego en las elecciones intermedias en términos tan terribles como los que lo enviaron a la oficina Oval. Su discurso en horario de máxima audiencia en el Salón de la Independencia en Filadelfia está exponiendo lo que él ve como los riesgos de aquellos a los que ha denominado republicanos ultramaga para el sistema de gobierno de la nación, su posición en el extranjero y la forma de vida de sus ciudadanos. El el esfuerzo explícito de Biden por marginar a Trump y sus seguidores de hacer a América grandiosa nuevamente marca un giro brusco para el presidente quien predicó su deseo de lograr la unidad nacional en su discurso inaugural. Los funcionarios de la Casa Blanca dijeron que refleja su creciente preocupación por las propuestas ideológicas de los aliados de Trump y la negación implacable de los resultados de las elecciones de 2020 de la nación. Por su parte, Trump planea un mitin este fin de semana en Scranton, Pensilvania, que es el lugar de nacimiento del presidente Joe Biden. En otras informaciones, el Centro para el Control y la Prevención de Enfermedades respaldó el jueves los refuerzos actualizados de COVID-19, abriendo el camino para una campaña de vacunación de otoño que podría mitigar un aumento invernal. Los nuevos refuerzos dirigidos a las cepas de Omicron más comunes de la actualidad deberían comenzar a llegar a las farmacias y clínicas en unos días. La decisión de la directora del CDC, Rochelle Walensky, se produjo poco después de que los asesores de la agencia votaran a favor de la recomendación. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Space, a final frontier. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. So during the past break, one of my misconceptions, one of my many, about the universe was clarified by Professor and astronomer Salman Hamid because I had posed to him in the earlier segment that we spent together today uh, about the moon having been formed by a crash of a meteor into the Earth. Well, I got it partially right. That seems to be true. The professor will verify that in a second. But that the water on the moon didn't come from that crash. Uh, it was not water that was displaced from the Earth and ended up on the moon. So clarify that, help everyone, help the one other person out there might have shared this misconception with me, and then we'll move on. Okay, Salman? Yeah, uh, yeah Bill, you get half a credit. And, I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, <laughs> that was a good question, though. I mean, that makes sense. No, so this is, so formation of the moon, by the way, so t talking about this issue of uh, going to the moon and finding things out, before the Apollo mission, there were a lot of different theories of how the moon was formed. And uh, because of the samples we got from the moon, we could analyze the rocks. And actually that really solidified the debate that yes, moon formed in some sense from a collision way back and not just a meteor. I mean, this was sort of like a planet sized body, probably a Mars sized body uh, that early, early in the solar system came in and crashed into the earth. And uh, basically it was the crust that went into the orbit and actually then coalesced into, there was enough material that coalesced into uh, into the moon. So some of the material is from the earth and some of the material is from the colliding body uh, that came in. And uh, so that's how the moon was formed. It's no longer really a debate. I mean, it's um, most astronomers actually accept uh, that idea, but water on the moon is uh, not coming from there, uh, but but rather there is a constant bombardment and we have that constant bombardment on Earth as well. Uh, we actually see those as meteors, right? I mean, so you see tiny pieces that are coming in, but not just that, but I mean, you have asteroids that have a lot of water in them. You have comets, but certainly asteroids. And on the moon, they also crash. They crash on Earth, they crash on the moon, and uh, which you can see the craters as well in general and they can actually deposit water. The problem is whether water stays there or not because it evaporates, it has no atmosphere. And that's where some of those regions that are in the shadow uh, permanently, this is really one of those places where set number shines, but in those craters in the, sh in the shadows, you have water, ice, 
that is there and it's that water rise that potentially because it makes it easy to access it you can drill down and try to extract water from it there is a question about how easy that process is going to be but in those polar regions we think and we know actually there is water but people don't exactly know how much and how easy it will be uh, there to access. And so there are rovers that are planned to go there and going to look for it. Okay, one last remedial question for the morning. You say that the water evaporates, but when we think about evaporation here on Earth, we're talking about water going up into clouds, and obviously there are none of those So when, on the moon. So when you say evaporates, what do you mean? What's that process? What happens well, to the it, water? It loses it loses uh, because there is no atmosphere. It just goes into space. I see. Okay, better. So, okay, yeah. I, I want so, three quarters credit. And then it thing. becomes space water and lands on another body somewhere? It's very little. We're talking about a few molecules. Yeah, I mean, it's not sort of like, you know, it's not that there is an inverse rain going on sort of like, you know, <laughs> upwards from there. Well, here's it's a, not this like is a, that. We're, this is also a remedial question. So, you know, there's the, it's obviously hydrogen and oxygen that make water up. If the elements hydrogen and oxygen exist somewhere, can water form somehow? Or has it, where is the water forming from in the first place? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, yeah. Extra I mean, credit uh, for Monty. Stump, Extra stump credit. Where I, does I water think come about from? That too. Well, uh, <laughs> this is something... A lot of the stuff happens in gas clouds, uh, which are, of course, in order to form, as Carl Sagan would say, in order to uh, form oxygen, which is part of water. So if you, in order to have water, you'll need stars, right? Because hydrogen was uh, sort of like, you know, formed in the Big Bang, but rest of the complex elements uh, formed uh, in stars. And then once those got ejected, I mean, oftentimes you have conditions in gas clouds where it's not just water. Water is relative, is a relatively simpler molecule. Uh, you can also have very complex molecules and uh, here is uh, for, for uh, beer aficionados and well, like, you know, the, you can actually have complex alcohol and stuff like that actually in the molecular cloud, in the clouds which are called molecular clouds. So you can form complex molecules, including water, and alcohol and other things. I'm focusing on I can alcohol, see the advertising campaign. <laughs> the, the advertising campaign now. Have a beer with Salman on the far side of the moon. Yeah. God. The universe right. wants you and, to drink alcohol. Should, <laughs> I made it for you. And and, and I should mention that uh, here the five college astronomy department and UMass actually they have uh, the, the, the kind of telescopes uh, that they have access to they actually have detected a lot of those kind of molecules uh, with research done at UMass. So here is the local component. But I think that that actually does a happy hour in space. I think that's, a, <laughs> that's not a bad bad thing. And, and maybe that's why, you know, th those uh, those species, those uh, civilizations in those gas clouds uh, with alcohol, they've been trying to send signals, but they're so drunk. I mean, maybe they, you know, it doesn't have slurred speech come in. We, we go like, oh, that must not be an intelligent signal. But that's another way of getting that. But yes, there are complex molecules out in space. And, uh, and, and then when the solar system is forming, those become part of uh, the solar system. And that's where comets and asteroids have that, but so do planets. The key thing is to keep it there. And um, on the solar, in the solar system, we know Earth has oceans, but so does Europa and Titan, uh, not uh, well, Titan uh, also probably, and also uh, Saturn's moon and Saladus and things like that. So there is a lot of water. Water is not the issue. Liquid water is there, and even liquid water is a lot of there. So, uh, that, so those things are available. That's the reason when somebody says, can, is there a potential for life elsewhere? Well, potential for life is almost, not almost, is 100%. The issue comes in, can there be complex life form that can talk uh, to us and I, and remember I didn't say intelligent because that's still a question that is still that jury is still out about intelligent life on planet on this planet as well but at least we can talk to each other like you know we can build stuff so I mean I'm, you know we had a former president like you know so you can't really <laughs> brag about intelligence so wow so there's water everywhere we just have a second or two left but there's water everywhere. If there's water everywhere, there is the potential for life in many, many places throughout the universe. That's the point here, Salman? Liquid water is crucial, right? Water can be in vapor form. 
but it's the cru crucial thing is liquid water. And even in our own solar system, we know that there are oceans underneath the ice sheet of Europa. We know there are ice sheets uh, on, on the Saturn's moon, Enceladus, and so, and even on Titan. So there is plenty of liquid water. I'm so looking forward to this beer with you on the far side of the moon. Or maybe Thanks. tonight. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Salman. All right, thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hi, I'm Mike Fenton, candidate for Governor's Council. I've been practicing law in Western Massachusetts for 10 years, and I'm an adjunct law professor at Western New England University, where I also earned my MBA. I've been a member of the Springfield City Council for 12 years, three of those years as council president. I believe that the combination of these experiences uniquely qualify me to be your next governor's counselor. I respectfully ask that you consider my candidacy. Thank you. Paid for by the committee to elect Michael Fenton. The Three County Fair. Let's get cotton candy. The Great Late Summer Fair. The school bus demo derbies are insane. Labor Day weekend in Northampton. So many free concerts. You going? Never miss the fair. The Three County Fair. Free parking this year? The racing pigs are so cute. Summer's not over yet. Are you kidding? Hot air balloon rides? Mom's apple pie won first place. What do you go for? The rides. The games. The food. The Great Late Summer Fair. The Three County Fair. Labor Day weekend in Northampton. Picture perfect days in the valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots. Check out the new and expanded bar area, or dine outside on the patio. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday starting at 9 a.m. and serves breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And don't forget about Sunday brunch and live music every Thursday and Sunday. The Bridgeside Grill, right in the heart of downtown Sunderland. Need a ride to the doctor? Tech support? Pictures hung? Looking to connect with others in the community? At Northampton Neighbors, our goal is to help seniors live independent, fulfilling lives by providing connection and support along the way. We are free of charge and offer a range of social and volunteer opportunities, as well as services for members 55 and older in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. Membership in Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. It's about engaging in place. This place, the city of Northampton. We welcome one and all to join, volunteer, or donate to Northampton Neighbors. Together, we can create the community we all want to live in, now and in the future. Find us at NorthamptonNeighbors.org or by calling 413-341-0160. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Artbeat, our weekly, our weekly segment with Donabelle Cassis. Donabelle, the microphone is all yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. It's September, which I can't believe it's September. And I'm so excited because in 22 days, Florence Night Out will take over downtown Florence. It's an arts and culture block party featuring local artists, musicians, dancers, performers, and local businesses. And this year, cardboard and mixed media artist Reed Arhood will create an outdoor sculpture on Maple Street for the festival. They join us today. Welcome. Hi. Now, Reed. Oh, great. Now, Reed, I've seen your work and it is so inspiring and powerful. And I recently learned you are also a farmer and carpenter. Does this yes. inform the work you do? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so the piece that I'm making, um, I mean, it has a lot of different themes, um, but I think that um, I'm really interested in not just sustainability, but like 
regenerative agriculture. Mm. Um, and so in my work as an artist, I use mainly repurposed materials um, and, you know, like uh, turning, turning trash into something beautiful and giving it new life. Mm. Um, and that is going to be true of the sculpture at Florence St. Out as well. You know, I love this idea of really breathing new life into these discarded items and transforming them. And I know, you know, you have created works from cardboard. Is it mostly cardboard that you work with when you do these outdoor sculptures? I love cardboard. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of times I use cardboard, um, but I, I've used all sorts of other things. Um, a few years ago, um, I'm involved with uh, the Art Garden, uh, which is a small arts nonprofit in Shelburne Falls. And every winter, um, they have an outdoor sculpture and art installation festival and only lasts for a day or two. Um, but I built um, this sort of wooden pyramid um, that was sort of, it had um, these different levels um, with lights um, that people could come and, and light a candle for a loved one or, um, or just for themselves. Um, and by the end of the night, the whole thing was, was lit up. Um, <laughs> so it sort of, sort of runs the gamut, but I do love cardboard. I love, it's it's everywhere we can't we can't escape it you know boxes mm -hmm. come to our doors and mm -hmm. um, there they are you know mm -hmm. like they're generally free they're just going to get recycled or you know thrown out otherwise and it's a really amazing material to work with could could you give us an idea of what you will be constructing for Florence Night Out the size of it i you know you say there are different themes but what will we see and do we get to walk in it or we walk around it? Tell us more about that. Um, I think it, so the, the space itself, it has a fence around it. And I think that, um, I'm going to fill the space. Um, but I think that people will generally be on the outside of the fence looking in. Um, and the piece is about, um, it, it's been like a chaotic, like really hard few years for everyone, <clears throat> myself included. And it's about taking those those hard times, the you know, the the grief and the loss and coming through the other side and um just like making something better. Um like looking at the new chapter. Um it's sort of like you were asking about me, my farming, like informing my art practice. And um, it's like, it's, so the themes of this piece in particular are coming from, it's sort of like the, the circle of life is like death, like ultimately leads to life, leads to death. Uh, it's like, you can't have good soil without something decomposing and rotting and being really disgusting for a while, but then it turns into something beautiful. Mm. Um, and so that's sort of the general feeling of the piece. And then the actual, what it will look like, um, it's going to be sort of a swarm of various insects um, coming up and out of the ground, um, getting larger as they go up. They're going to transform into a, a big flock of birds overhead. Wow. Wow. That sounds so amazing. It's it's called Fertile Ground, yes? Is that the title of the piece? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, how fitting. And it is in a grassy lot on Maple Street. <laughs> so you'll see that they'll be coming yeah. out from this grassy lawn and uh, transforming the space. Now, Reed, you've lived in Florence for about six years. Yeah. So it's so exciting that you're actually finally going to be a part of this festival. How has Florence changed the way you see your work? Has it affected your work practice in a way? Are you, were you from Shelburne Falls area and then moved to Florence? What Tell us about that. Uh, no, I'm actually originally from Kentucky. Um, oh. and I've been, <laughs> um, I've been in the Northeast for um, 
quite a while, but in New England specifically for uh, about 12 years now, something like that. Mm. Um, and Florence for about half of that time. And I think that um, after college, I moved around a lot. Um, and I think landing in Florence has felt really grounding and um, building home and building community um, has felt really nourishing mm. and um, like literally digging into the soil and putting putting a little like some roots in. Yeah. Well, just uh, quickly, what what do you farm? Is there any particular crop that you work with? Well, I have a small herd of dairy goats, and um, I also make maple syrup in the spring, and I have a large garden, and I um, have recently started um, uh, growing shiitake mushrooms. Ooh. Um, I inoculated them two years ago and uh, finally got my first huge harvest after the rains last week. Oh my gosh, that must be so exciting. It's so exciting. <laughs> after all that hard work. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Well, Reed, I'm so excited to see your piece. If you want to see Reed's sculpture called Fertile Ground, it will be on Maple Street during Florence Night Out, which is Saturday, September 24th from 4 to 7 p.m. Uh, there's also an after party from 7 to 9 at Bombex Center for Arts and Equity. For more information, you can go to florencenightout.org. I also want to thank you, Reed, for sharing your work with us today. Uh, and also, absolutely. And also the Florence Night Out sponsors Apex Dental Associates of Florence, Bank ESB, Cooley Dickinson Healthcare, and Florence Civic and Business Association. And of course, River Valley Co-op, who sponsored your sculpture. We can't wait to see it. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I want to thank you, Donabel, uh, for all the work you do to make Florence Night Out happen. And I understand it's a collective effort. There are a lot of people involved. But it just sounds like an amazing, amazing a community event, celebrating arts, but celebrating the community as well. It just sounds like fun, free, open to the public, as they say, and everyone is welcome. It's an amazing event. So thank you so very much, uh, Reed Arhood, Donabel Cassis. Thank you both so very much. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful edition of Thanks. Artbeat. Charleston was once the rage History has turned a page This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The minutes the current thing Hey everyone, Gordon Oliver here, and if you don't know me, I'm the host of the weekly Saturday show, The Cambridge Connection, on WHMP.com and wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. For the last year, I've been privileged to connect you, our listeners, with experts from a variety of financial industries and organizations that offer assistance and education to help everyone become more financially fit. See you on Saturday. Join Brent Hines, Executive Director of the Foundation for Financial Wellness, because being financially well is a source of power, contentment, and peace. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. Live and news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10.